You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. U.S. prosecutors begin to follow through on their announced determination to pay close attention to coronavirus fraud. Data stolen from Chinese social network Weibo is now for sale on the black market at a discount. The pandemic affects scheduled software updates and sunsets at Google and Microsoft. A new Mirai variant is out in the wild. And a DDoS attack in Australia turns out to be just a lot of Australians in need of government services. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, March 23rd, 2020. U.S. federal prosecutors are taking the Attorney General's advice on getting serious about investigating COVID-19 fraud seriously. The U.S. Department of Justice announced yesterday that it had undertaken its first enforcement action against online coronavirus scams. The department secured an injunction Saturday against a website coronavirusmedicalkit.com that was offering World Health Organization COVID-19 vaccine kits for just $4.85 shipping and handling. And that would be a bargain, except that there is no vaccine, still less a vaccine kit. And the World Health Organization isn't distributing anything of the kind. Connoisseurs of fishing expeditions will note that the website, which the Department of Justice is queuing up for a wire fraud indictment, asks people to enter their credit card information on the site. It's simple and easy, but it's also phishing, and you don't have to be Sir Isaac Walton to figure out what comes next. A federal criminal investigation into alleged wire fraud continues. The injunction is intended to prevent harm to potential victims. The announcement quoted the U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Texas as noting the action's consistency with Attorney General Barr's memorandum urging that priority be given the prosecution of coronavirus-related online crime. There are also some cooperative state and federal law enforcement efforts in progress. State Scoop reports that the U.S. Justice Department and the Commonwealth of Virginia have formed a task force to investigate coronavirus fraud. It's particularly important at times like this to verify that appeals from businesses, charities, and government agencies are in fact legitimate that the appeals are in fact coming from the real organizations and that those organizations aren't selling snake oil. There's always a bull market in snake oil at times like this. And fishing is going like gangbusters. And there's always a bull market on stolen PII. It's a criminal evergreen. Information from 538 million users of the Chinese social network Weibo is now for sale online. ZDNet, which has seen the black market advertising for the data, says the information offered includes real names, site usernames, gender, and location. About a third of the affected users' phone numbers are also for sale. Still, the data are less valuable than they might have been, 
passwords aren't included, which accounts for the data's low, low price of roughly $250 American. The coronavirus pandemic is having an impact on software updates. According to Forbes, Microsoft has decided to extend security support for Windows 10 by six months, out through October 13th of this year. Redmond's intention is to ease the burden on customers who have other things to deal with these days, beyond upgrading to a newer OS. Google's planned upgrades to Chrome are also being affected, in this case put on hiatus. Mountain View says its priority is to ensure Chrome continues to be stable, secure, and work reliably for anyone who depends on it. If any fixes are necessary, Google says the ones affecting security will get first call on their resources. They're also making changes to their planned upgrades. Chrome 81, released last week, will remain in beta, bleeping computer reports. Google will skip Chrome 82 altogether and move on to Chrome 83. By some accounts, nearly 40% of successful breaches occur at the application layer, but investments in securing that layer continue to lag. Andrew Peterson is founder and CEO at Signal Sciences, a company that's looking to close that gap. We caught up at the RSA conference. So it's interesting with the rise of this conversation around zero trust networks. Yeah. So, so many people have focused on the authentication side of what that, that story is. And to us, zero trust at its core is whether or not it's an internal application or an external one from a web perspective. Because a lot of people are still, look, like when you're building internal applications within a company, a lot of times you're building it as a web-based application, right? So you're accessing that internal application with your web browser. Right, right. right. Um, and historically, you've never used a WAF on that. That's always been behind a network. You got a VPN, you're inside. But to us, it's like, look, if you have somebody that's an authenticated internal user sending, you know, even OWASP top 10 attack types, you know, SQL injection or cross-site scripting or whatever on those internal apps, you got to be more worried about that than even your external apps. Because hmm. those internal ones, if, especially if you get access to it, you're going to have, you know, user credentials and user control to be able to access all sorts of things right. that in many ways are actually way more harmful or potentially more valuable to that attacker than something that they could access via a, a customer-facing website. That's a big area that, you know, we've been talking to a lot of the analyst community and a lot of our customers about. If something hasn't been in the budget for protection in the past, uh-huh. that it's got to be something new that people are thinking about. And we're, so we're saying, like, look, whether or not it's an internal application or an internal one, that philosophy around you know zero trust, it's use the same approach that you're using on external things for internal applications. Right. Like it, it needs to apply in this sort of web protection space as well. How do you help your customers when they come to you and they say, listen, I've got, here's my budget. And I've got to figure out how I'm going to allocate, you know, what gets what percentage of what, you know, and how do I help me understand how to throw the the correct amounts of money at the different tools, one of which could be yours. What's that conversation like? It depends on the customer, first of all, right? And, And they tend to fall into two buckets, one where it's a company that's probably just starting to make investments in security tools. Okay. Um, and then the other would be an enterprise that's been doing it for a long time. So the new customer group where they're trying to say, hey, look, I'm making a budget from scratch I, or, or I know that I need to make more of an investment on the security side, that's great. Like, And we're seeing that more and more. There's more companies earlier on that are making earlier investments in security. Okay. And the question then with them is, well, what are the most important assets you have? And those companies, they tend to be cloud native. Like they, they tend to be, they fall into that bucket of modern 
modern software or modern technology companies where the whole value of their technology is actually the software, right? Right, right. Looking at the big picture, um, as you look towards the future, not just within your own products, but within the whole uh, vertical of, of cybersecurity itself, what sort of things are, are you looking toward? How do you see things playing out? I've been lucky to have some conversations with a, fun, uh, a bunch of folks um, that are really forward-thinking, right, in this area. And so we certainly have our own views, but I like to validate that with other people on the market. And right. um, I think one of the consistent things that I've heard from from CISOs uh, about what they think that the, especially the defensive world, needs to be able to move forward is it's kind of two different things. One is um, when one person gets attacked, we need to make sure that everybody else becomes more protected instead of more vulnerable, right? Mm. And so so the the message there is essentially like, you know, look at if an attacker is able to find one CVE and they're able to exploit that, typically what happens is they use that same CVE on everybody else and immediately everybody else is less safe rather than more safe after that attack has occurred, right? Right. Even after you do analysis on it and we, we can you know, give reporting and we can name the CVE and we, you know, we call it all that. that that's something that um, you know, attackers are always going to have the advantage on defenders until we can get into a situation where, hey, the moment that one person gets attacked and we can identify you know, that attack pattern, that we can actually make everyone safer at the same time. So yeah. surprise, surprise, this is kind of a core, a core value of what we do, at least uh, at, at Signal Sciences. But I think it's, you're starting to see this at other types of uh, security companies as well, is that they're leveraging this cloud backend system where you can have a bunch of technology that's deployed within a bunch of different infrastructure. And once you identify an attack that's happening in one place, the whole network gets stronger mm-hmm. and the whole network gets smarter. And that's immediately, right? That's not like, a, hey, we're going to do an FSI sack and we're going to share information after the fact. We're going to do it actually in an automated fashion. And figure out a way where all these different systems can talk to each other, can exchange that information in a a Rosetta Stone for this sort of stuff, right? (laughs) It's not a silver bullet, right, by any means. But I think it is the way that if we're seeing so much of what the attackers are doing is using automation as a means of being able to get the other upper hand, we as defenders need to be able to use automation to be able to to, to counter that. So it's essentially, to me, it's the only way that we can really sort of try to scale our defensive efforts is, yeah, is that concept is, hey, if one person gets attacked, everybody else should become stronger rather right. than become weaker in the process. Right. That's Andrew Peterson from Signal Sciences. A new variant of the Mirai botnet has been exploiting Leland DVRs and Zyxel network-attached storage devices. Both Leland and Zyxel have issued fixes, but unpatched devices remain vulnerable. Palo Alto Network's researchers first described the Zyxel issue last Thursday— Researchers at Kihu 360's NetLab found the similar Leland vulnerabilities, which they disclosed Friday. Palo Alto calls the botnet Mukashi. ZDNet reports that the Leland bugs may have been under exploitation since last August and have figured in distributed denial-of-service attacks. Australia's Minister for Government Services says the country's MyGov website had suffered a successful distributed denial-of-service attack, but quickly recanted. It was just thousands of Australians seeking COVID-19 relief, news.com.au reported. A ZDNet op-ed complains that Canberra has again underestimated the requirements of offering government services online. In this case, last week there were 95,000 people visiting MyGov to seek information and services as the country prepares further measures to weather the coronavirus pandemic. 
The site, the Minister for Government Services, is only designed to handle 55,000. So it's not malicious outsiders, but another case of meeting the enemy and finding he is us. The stress on MyGov drove people, many of them people whose employment has ended or is at risk during the pandemic, to seek help in person at Centerlink offices. That didn't go well either. Not only are the offices working with reduced staffing, but the waits would have been long in any case with lines stretching around city blocks. It's difficult to know how well people were keeping their distance, but from the photos in the Sydney Morning Herald, it looks as if they're generally standing a lot closer than the recommended two meters. Stateside, people are saying stand six feet apart, but that's just because six feet is easier to visualize than 6.56168 feet, and not because North American viruses give you a half foot's worth of leeway. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Mike Benjamin. He's the head of Black Lotus Labs at CenturyLink. Uh, Mike, it's always great to have you back. Um, one of the things you and your team have been tracking is how some of the threat actors have been using third-party file hosting uh, to do some of the things that they do. Can, can you give us uh, some information here? What are we looking out for? Yeah, and I, I'd say that this isn't the newest behavior change, but we haven't talked about it in mass as an industry. So we thought it was something interesting that would be topical to discuss. And realistically, what we're seeing is that 
many of us have learned to trust these third-party central services. So, for instance, Dave, as you and I are talking here today, uh, I had to include a third-party JavaScript library in my browser that's hosted on one of these well-known public cloud services. My computer now trusts it. And when we're looking at links in our browsers, we're looking at files we download, we've learned over time that some of those big names in the industry are trustworthy. In fact, quite frankly, they have amazing security teams. They do a really good job at removing things. But all the better for now the actors to put files there for a very short time period, deliver it to a small number of people, and abuse that trust. And so the simple act of looking in a browser URL bar to see that, hey, that's a major brand I know and that really is their domain is something that we've taught people. Now we've allowed actors to put their own malicious files on those very domains. And so it's not just an act of making sure the domain is trustworthy, but even just making sure that the person who sent it is really who it should be, making sure it's something you actually expected. Now, is, is time a factor here where, where the bad guys are, are putting their files up knowing that they're going to be discovered and removed quickly so they have a, a certain window of time to take advantage of? Yeah, so for a long time, they were actually hosting the primary file of their, their malware on some of these providers. And over time, the providers have gotten very good at deleting them, allowing them, or even blocking them on upload. And so that time-based aspect definitely is a component of it. So now we see the actors shifting to putting only their first-tier downloaders on those things. Now they're scripts. They can obfuscate and modify more readily over time, making it much more difficult for the hoster to detect in real time that it's malicious. And so that lightweight maldoc, that lightweight PowerShell script, whatever that may be, that can now be permitted for download for a longer time period, allowing them a little bit more leeway in their campaign time. What sort of uh, of technology is available in terms of protecting users from themselves when it comes to this sort of thing? I mean, I, I can imagine, as you say, some users will see a trusted name, they'll, they'll click through. Is there a second line of defense that an organization could have in place? Well, we go back to traditional security controls, content filters, sandboxes, endpoint agents, anything that's going to be able to detect and block either in real time or relatively quickly after download, be able to to remove the host from the environment or sandbox the file inside the file system. All of those things can be effective, as they have for a number of years. But realistically, what we're trying to convey is make sure that people know what that threat is, be aware of it, be cognizant of yet another thing they should be thinking about, um, and realize that just because the domain name may be trusted, the entirety of the URL may not be something you expect to go to. I know I use some of those services for my personal email and other things. That doesn't mean that everything at those domains should be something I should be clicking on or interacting with. And even on top of that, we do see the actors making use of some of the mass mailing software out there that's very popular with the most reputable brands for their customer contact, their email marketing campaigns. What a great way to bypass mailing software that's looking for things to block than using a very trusted service. So just keeping in mind that this is an avenue actors are using, and then going back to making sure the efficacy of those normal controls that we've all been focused on for a number of years are there and effective and installed and monitored. All right. Well, Mike Benjamin, thanks so much for joining us. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. 
And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.